0: All right. welcome moms whether it's morning noon or afternoon my name is liz ackerman and i'm host of the moms for america mom to mom homeschool uh homeschooling together podcast and we are just so glad that you have joined us um i our homeschooling journey began in 1982 that was bc before computers and um We homeschooled our six children. They have all grown. They've all attended and graduated from college. And I think one of our greatest and uh, accomplishment that we are so grateful for is that they all love to learn. And were there holes in their education? Did we do everything perfectly? No, they'll be the first to tell you that. But they love to learn and they recognize their weaknesses and they're able to address them, able to say that, well, mom, dad, that wasn't the greatest, but we know we're going to change things. We can do things differently. I have some grandkids being homeschooled now, others in other alternative education paths. So um, even though I'm no longer in the trenches, I feel it's so important to stay up to date with what is happening with all these wonderful educational entrepreneurs and I want to be a resource for not only my own family, but for friends and those who are just fed up or just um, at the end of their rope for know, knowing what how, how best to educate their own children. Our guest today is Carrie McDonald, someone that I have been following for a long time, I will read you her bio, but then we'll want her to tell us for real <laughs> uh, who she is. She is a senior fellow at the Foundation of Edu- uh, Economic Education, another uh, entity I followed for a long time, and she's author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. She's also the Belinda Johnson Family Education Fellow at State Policy Network, and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and a regular Forbes contributor. She's interested in homeschooling and schooling alternatives, self-directed learning, um, parent empowerment, educational entrepreneurship, school choice, and family and child policy. She has had articles appear everywhere, Wall Street Journal, The New York Post, Newsweek, NPR, Education Next, Reason Magazine, Washington Examiner, City Journal, Entrepreneur, and the Journey of School Choice. She has a master's degree in education policy from Harvard and a bachelor's degree in economics from Bowdoin College. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her husband and four children. Carrie, I am tired out just reading your bio. So would you introduce yourself to our moms and tell us a little bit about what you're doing and and what your mission is?
1: Thanks for having me, Liz, and a special thank you for being one of the pioneers in the homeschool, the modern homeschooling movement that has made it so much easier for those of us who've homeschooled in more recent years. Thanks to your efforts and and those like you and, and the, sort of those early uh, homeschool moms. So really appreciate all of the the work you've done and the the path you've paved for us. You know, I um love to spotlight alternative education models and encourage families to recognize that they have choices beyond an assigned district school and those choices are becoming increasingly accessible um, in many ways, because education entrepreneurs, sort of these everyday parents and teachers, are out there building new low-cost learner-centered schooling alternatives. I think we'll get into some of that discussion today: microschools and hybrid homeschool programs and um learning pods and, and all kinds of different education possibilities that were really gaining traction. Uh, in the couple of decades before the COVID response uh, beginning in 2020, but have accelerated since then. And so- you mentioned the title of my uh, my book, Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. That traced a lot of sort of the evolution of these micro and learning centers and other schooling alternatives. It talked about the growth and diversification of the homeschooling movement since the turn of the millennium. Uh, that book came out in 2019 and we've just seen sort of skyrocketing growth and popularity uh, for these models since then. Obviously, homeschooling rates remain well above pre-pandemic levels, more and more families interested in leaving a uh, conventional classroom, conventional schools. And now with the expansion of school choice policies in many states, uh, more families have the ability to do that uh, in much easier, more effective ways. So uh, lots to be excited about, lots to be optimistic about. And I always say I have the, the best job in the world because I get to go around and interview all of these people who are really <laughs> Uh, transforming American education from the bottom up.
0: Oh, that is wonderful, and I know as we look back on our homeschooling journey, we kind of feel like, well, somebody had to cross the plains on foot and in an ox cart so that others could follow in a car or in a jet. So um, it it was a wonderful journey. So, Carrie, I noticed that your latest podcast interview was with a mom. I think the title was "Homeschool Burnout." Was um, uh, oh shoot, I've kind of lost it. But a hybrid school helps a mom who's in the middle of homeschool burnout. Well, I would bet that a lot of the moms listening know I understand home uh, mom burnout, but can you? They might not know about hybrid schools or pod schools. Could you tell us about these wonderful options that are just popping up?
1: Yeah, thanks, Liz. So my most recent podcast episode that came out on Friday was called How Hybrid Homeschooling Can Prevent Homeschool Mom Burnout. And I interviewed uh, a, a mom, Jenna Wertheimer, who leads Grace Preparatory Academy, which is a university model faith-based hybrid homeschool program located just outside of Boston, where I'm located. But the university model of hybrid homeschools uh, exist all across the country. There are dozens of these hybrid homeschool models. And hybrid homeschools really began to emerge in the mid-1990s. Uh, Eric Warren is a professor at Kennesaw State University just outside of Atlanta. He has done a lot of research on the origins of the hybrid homeschool model. His, he's a homeschool school dad himself and his children attend a hybrid homeschool, And so he's really been able to document the growth uh, and evolution of this of this movement. And really what hybrid homeschools um, typically look like are you young people are typically recognized as homeschoolers and they'll attend uh, a brick and mortar program, either two or three days a week, where that's a drop-off program with hired educators who work through a specific curriculum. Most hybrid homeschool programs are faith-based, but not all. And and then the families will work through the rest of that curriculum, the remainder of the week at home or in kind of their own sort of self-organized parent cooperatives. And um, and this model again, starting in the mid 1990s, uh, growing in popularity over subsequent de- decades, and now just exploding as more and more families look to schooling alternatives. There's a real openness, I think, since 2020 and the education disruption. Uh, In the wake of the COVID response that's led parents to be more aware of and more open to um, teaching and learning beyond a conventional classroom and we've certainly seen that and so in the example of Jenna uh, running the hybrid homeschool program outside of Boston. She talks in the podcast about being a homeschool mom. Um, you know, I guess it probably she started her homeschooling journey probably about 15 years ago, 15 or 16 years ago, and quickly became burnt out. Uh, she has five kids. And, you know, after a while, it just got a lot, especially with older kids and younger kids. And and so she ended up putting her kids into um, public school Uh, really because she was burnt out. She was just tired from that process and didn't have a lot of the support system that she really wanted uh, here in Massachusetts. And then she ended up um, befriending two other homeschool moms in the area who were starting this hybrid homeschool program, which they started back in 2012. And so that program was this university model program, two days a week offsite, the rest of the time uh, in working through curriculum at home. And she realized, gosh, you know, if this had existed before, you know, earlier, before I had put my kids in school, I would have never enrolled them in school. So sure enough, her younger children, she enrolled in this hybrid homeschool program, was so excited about it. And then a couple, you know, fast forward a few years later, she has been running the program now um, for, I think it is, probably six or seven years, and she has seen tremendous growth. So the program started in 2012 with seven kids and these two moms, and uh, it had about a little over 20 kids beginning in 2020. It's now over 70 kids. Uh, And so, you know, anyone who thought that this momentum towards schooling alternatives and homeschooling was going to wane uh, from its pandemic peak Uh, is mistaken because really we're seeing in a lot of areas, continued growth, parents really looking for something else uh, beyond what they're finding in their local schools. And so that's just one example. There are university models, model hybrid schools. That's probably the biggest brand uh, or the most well-known brand of hybrid homeschooling across the country. Um, But there's other independent hybrid homeschool programs as well. I interviewed a woman named Becky Abrams out in the Pacific Northwest in this rural town Town of Grants Pass, Oregon, about four hours south of Portland. Uh, She was a homeschool mom. Similarly, was starting to get a little burnt out thinking about sending her kids to school. She started a co-op in 2015, a homeschool co-op with about 40 kids. And that evolved into a hybrid homeschool program. Again, two days a week drop off. She now has close to 200 kids and just opened a second location uh, because um, there's just growing demand there. So exciting times!
0: Wow, that is so true. So university model is this a, a, a particular um, entity university model, or is it just I mean, is this? Uh, can you describe what that it means?
1: Yeah. So that's the, the a brand or okay. uh, one particular organization okay. that yes. um, parents who want to create a hybrid homeschool program may choose to uh, align with. And I believe there's a membership fee, you know, you sort of hey. um, apply to be accepted into that program. And then um, with that, You get a lot of resources and support. You get this network of university model schools. I believe there's over 90 of these hybrid homeschool programs under the university model brand across the country, but there's also many others that are independent. So that's just probably the most kind of well-known brand. It's the um, brand that, uh, again, my Friday podcast guest, um, her program is included. And what's interesting about university model and hybrid homeschool programs more generally, and- Eric Warren talks a lot about this in his book about hybrid homeschooling. Um, some of the programs are recognized as private schools uh, and others are homeschool cooperatives. And often mm-hmm. that just depends on regulations at the state or local level or um, how individual uh, the individual learning communities want to self-identify. So for example, here in Massachusetts, There are three of these university model hybrid homeschool programs, uh, one in Western Massachusetts and one on Cape Cod, and then this one just outside of Boston uh, that I interviewed on on Friday, that the other two are recognized private schools, but still kids are only going two or three days a week. Uh, And then the one just outside of Boston is uh, a homeschool program. So uh, really a lot of flexibility and variety there for families, uh, for teachers. I know Jenna, my guest on Friday, said that she's been able to recruit a lot of teachers who were You know, kind of growing fed up with the uh, traditional schooling model, some of them kind of at the end of their career, just about to retire, but wanted to stay uh, in the world of teaching, just maybe didn't Mm -hmm. want to do it five days a week, and this is a perfect Mm -hmm. fit for them.
0: Oh, thank you. It's the first I've heard of that. Thank you. Um, What about pod schools? They're a little bit different animal. Can you talk about pod schools?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, learning pods or pandemic pods, um, you know, we would think of them as very similar to homes to small homeschool Mm -hmm. co-ops. They this term pandemic pod really began to gain popularity in the summer of 2020, um, kind of spontaneous parent organized learning Mm -hmm. communities, parents realizing at that time that uh, schools were likely to remain closed in many areas for back to school in the fall of 2020, that there was going to be this remote learning. And so they said, well, gee, we have to take matters into our own hands to make sure that our kids are learning and that they're gaining some, you know, social interaction uh, mm-hmm. at that time. So we, you know, there were sort of probably tens of thousands of pandemic pods, if not more, uh, that began to sprout in uh, beginning in 2020. And a lot of these have emer- have evolved into kind of full-fledged micro or, you know, intentionally small, low cost, uh, mixed age Um, private schools. And we can talk about micro schools in a little bit, too. But but really, it started as these sort of pandemic pods that you that the sort of the one difference, I suppose, between um, most of these pandemic pods and a homeschool co-op is that they would often uh, hire a teacher or uh, a guide to run the co-op as a po- to run the pod as opposed to a mm-hmm. homeschool co-op where parents might take turns. And there were certainly those happening as well in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. and and so and we're often called a pod because it was sort of the, this new age term for a homeschool co-op uh, mm-hmm. where parents were taking turns. Um, but when we think certainly about learning pods now, uh, it's typically hired teachers, hired uh, educators or hired parents, who are mm-hmm. running these small, you know, usually fewer than a dozen mixed age students in a group. And some of your, you know, listeners and viewers might be familiar with uh, Prenda
2: mm-hmm. and
1: Prenda Pods, which is, uh, w- it, were these kind of small homeschool learning communities that began to emerge. It was The company was founded in Arizona in 2018 by Kelly Smith, who was homeschooling his children. Uh, and then created one of the first Prenda pods in his living room. And uh, and then that's evolved now to serve thousands of students across the country with hired guides who are typically parents who will be hired to run one of these pods, again, usually with fewer than 12 students, usually in their homes um, with a very personalized, customized curriculum. Uh, and so that's sort of example of of what these pods are, and 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 Prenda continues to grow. A lot of these kind of pod organizations do continue to uh, be popular. Isn't
0: that exciting?
1: Um, let's
0: see. So you mentioned mini schools. Would you like to move into discussing
1: a mini school, a micro school? Micro school, yeah. Although I love, I love your term mini school too. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> that's accurate. So right, these are micro schools are are sort of the modern interpretation of the one room schoolhouse. Again, they are intentionally small, mixed age, mm-hmm. multi age, um, low cost, typically private schools. Although some will run more as uh, homeschool programs um, with a highly individualized. Often learner-centered curriculum, and as I mentioned, many of these newer microschools began to emerge from pa- pandemic pods um, that that. Um, were created out of necessity beginning in 2020 and I'll give you just an example of what I mean so I'll, I'll use the example of Jill Perez she was a, a longtime public school teacher in the New Jersey public schools she had more recently shifted into higher education and do and did student teacher preparation um, for Rutgers University and Seton Hall University in New Jersey and that's what she was doing when COVID hit And uh, she realized that there was going to be this significant education disruption that was going to impact her four children who were all school age, all in school at the time. And so she ended up creating a pandemic pod with some other like-minded families during that initial 2020 to 2021 academic year when New Jersey schools were all still shut down. And that was so popular. Other neighbors, you know, kind of got wind of this and of what she was doing and said, gosh, that's amazing. I want in. Uh, mm-hmm. And so because of that sort of rising demand for her pod, she ended up creating a micro school called Tranquil Teachings Learning Center that mm-hmm. she opened in the fall. She rented commercial space and opened her micro school uh, in the fall of 2021 with about 40 students uh, again, mixed age who could attend. They in New Jersey, thankfully, homeschooling is very easy. Um, there's almost no requirements for homeschoolers in New Jersey, which provides a lot of that freedom and flexibility. So she had decided to run her program under homeschool law rather than private school law, which had a little bit um, more regulation. But again, that will vary kind of on on depending state by state on regulations. So families that attend Tranquil Teachings Learning Center can attend part time or full time up to five days a week as a mm-hmm. full time schooling alternative at a fraction of the cost of traditional private schools. And there's a, an assortment of core academic courses and enrichment courses kind of offered throughout the week. Uh, Jill was able in 2021 to recruit a lot of her teachers from the New Jer- uh, the New York City public schools who were just really fed up with ongoing COVID policies Mm -hmm. and sort of the disruption um, with remote schooling over the previous year, and they wanted a change. And so she was able to uh, provide some safe harbor for them, and and they really appreciated that freedom and flexibility of an alternative model. And her program continued to gain uh, a lot of popularity and interest from families that she ended up purchasing a building in the spring of 2022 uh, to expand still with the intent of staying small, but being able to mm-hmm. accommodate a few more families. Uh, so that's where, where, what she's been able to do. And a lot of these micro schools, you know, you'll hear the same thing. They some of them do want to expand or they want to scale, but they want to do so small. They really believe that the special sauce of a micro school or a mini school, as you call them, um, is that intentionally small size. So they do want to keep um, that that focus on small and personalized, but they may decide to uh, to open another location or to expand mm-hmm. laterally, just mm-hmm. not vertically. They don't want to become, mm-hmm. most of them don't want to become um big private schools although I have heard stories of some of these founders who have gone um gone out with the intention of creating a micro school you know with only a couple of dozen students and then they find that there's just so much interest in their community that they end up with a lot more than that so beware if you're someone interested in starting a micro school that uh you may not be micro if there's quite a bit of demand in your area
0: yes oh my goodness um i love that tranquil teachings that is just uh um oh we have a in the chat would classical conversations be considered a micro school
1: oh i love that yeah so my understanding of classical conversations is it's usually usually one day a week um and parents are typically uh on site for classical conversations you can correct me if i'm wrong i think um it's certainly within this overall umbrella of microschools and hybrid hybrid homeschool programs. I think probably the biggest difference is that um, that usually these these pods or these microschools or these hybrid schools would have hired educators, and and uh, typically parents are able to drop off their kids.
0: Okay. All right. Does that answer your question, Annie? Oh, Amy. I'm sorry, Amy. Yes. Okay. Um, so i just have a lot of questions bubbling up one thing um would you talk a little bit about the vela fund because you're talking about purchasing buildings and and these things and so our moms might not be aware that there is money available for educational entrepreneurs and not just you know a few dollars it's quite it can be quite substantial so if you would address yes, that.
1: I'm, I'm thrilled to talk about the Vela Education Fund, which is uh, a national philanthropic nonprofit that supports these everyday entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurial parents and teachers who are creating non-traditional out-of-system education models. These could include just homeschool co-ops uh like you know most of you are all familiar with it could include hybrid homeschool programs micro schools learning pods uh even virtual learning communities so there's a whole host of different uh education options that are being supported by the vela education fund but they're all unconventional out of system models Um, And Phala was started, was launched publicly in 2019. It uh, with initial support from the stand, from Stand Together Trust and the Walton Family Foundation. Since 2019, they've issued, I believe, it is now over 2,800 grants uh, to everyday entrepreneurs. These micro grants are usually either $2,500 or $10,000, so they're definitely micro. But there are opportunities if entrepreneurs are expanding to gain access to additional funding. And uh, you know, since launching, they have um, been able to you know give grants to again. a couple of thousand uh, entrepreneurs totaling more than $25 million Uh, and they keep going. I mean, they're, they're continuing to fund these programs. And I think even more than the micro grants um, entrepreneurs say that it's just the access to the, to the network, to the community of grantees across the country uh, who are all doing, you know, slightly different things, but kind of share that common commitment to individualized unconventional learning. And Vela supports, you know, again, all different educational philosophies, educational approaches. They support faith-based models and secular models, um, unschooling and self-directed models to, you know, classical models and Montessori. So a whole host of, of uh, different types of models. They're really agnostic when it comes to that, as long as you're operating, again, outside of a conventional system.
0: Well, Thank you. Isn't that just it makes me kind of want to jump up and down that there's help available and then a whole community that you can be, like you were saying, of, of grantees. Um, <clears throat> sometimes moms wonder about charter schools. Are you able to talk just What is a charter school and how is it different from a micro school or pod school or whatever?
1: Yeah. So, you know, charter schools um, came on the scene in the early 1990s their vision really was to be you know incubators of innovation um they were they are typically privately run but taxpayer funded uh, so they have much more autonomy than district schools um but they kind of trade uh in that uh, they, they gain autonomy at the expense of oversight and regulation. So if they're not meeting certain standards that they said that they would meet or not kind of hitting their benchmarks, then they can be closed down, unlike district schools, um, which is much harder to do. So be, they do have much more of that accountability. And they're also much more accountable to parents. So parents are able to choose um, to send their kids to a charter school if there are charter schools available in their state, um, as opposed to being assigned to a district. School, and if parents aren't satisfied with the charter school, they can leave. Um, again, a diff, which would be different than kind of compulsory school assignments. So they you know started off with a lot of promise and then unfortunately i think have become overly regulated uh, in some cases they're even more regulated than district schools um which is really unfortunate. I have been able to find a few charter schools that i think have retained that sense of innovation and experimentation that was the original vision. I think about for example the Wildflower Montessori network. Some of your listeners and viewers may know Wildflower. That started as a micro school network back in 2013, initially as um, sort of private storefront, intentionally small Montessori micro schools it started here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I am, um, but has spread across the country. I believe they now have several dozen micro all across the U.S. and more coming every day. Um, But they've also branched out in more recent years into uh, operating charter schools using sort of the same Mm. vision as those private Montessori, authentic Montessori um, schools. So now they have charter schools in Minneapolis, in Washington, D.C., and in New York City. And I was able to visit the one um, wildflower Montessori charter school in New York city. It's located in the South Bronx and is just such a, an incredible place um, really retaining that authentic Montessori feel that I think, Districts have tried to do and other charter school um, networks have tried to do within the Montessori space. And I don't, I haven't seen them be so as successful as I've seen the Wildflower um, program be in terms of really that authentic teacher driven um, um Montessori feel. So the Wildflower Montessori Network, like these other micro school networks, is really about activating teacher entrepreneurs to run these intentionally small learning communities. And I think it's, it's that kind of hands on uh, involvement that makes the difference.
0: Oh, well, Hey, thank you. Um, and also, as you were saying, unfortunately, at least here in Illinois, charter schools need to be approved by the local school board in order to start. And so you can kind of guess where that can easily go. So um, not the most efficient way to do things, I'm afraid. Um,
1: Yeah, and that's true in other states as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit tricky when you have when you have to approve your competition. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah,
0: that's exactly right. Um, So What has been the most, to you, the most interesting, the most um, enjoyable experience that you've had going around the country and interviewing all these educational entrepreneurs? What stands out is just one one or two of the, uh, I don't know, highlights.
1: (laughs) I don't know if I could pick. Let's see. I've just been I've loved seeing the diversity, um, not only of the models, but of the geographies, too. Um, I I guess one example of a of a micro school or a pod that stands out to me is um, Rewild Family Academy in the tiny town of Abbeville, Kansas, population 83. It's about an hour outside of Wichita. And it's run by an amazing entrepreneurial mom named Devin Dellenbach. She's been on my podcast. She's a former public school teacher in the Kansas public schools. Her husband is still a teacher in the Kansas public schools, but she decided to homeschool her kids when they hit school age because she didn't want her kindergartner on a bus every day, 45 minutes each way to the nearest public school. She just said, I think that's just such a long day for my little one. So she started homeschooling at that point and did that, um, well, I guess for probably about seven years. And then she realized she needed to earn some extra money to contribute to her family you know, inflation and various uh, economic circumstances. She felt like she needed to have an income to help, her, help with her husband. And uh, so she was thinking about, getting a job as a substitute teacher and maybe putting the kids in school. Mm-hmm. And then a homeschool friend of hers, her, one of her best friends who's also homeschooling said, you know, rather than going back into the system to be a teacher, why don't you just run a micro school or a pod in your home and see if anybody will come. And sure enough, people came. And so she's now, uh, she just opened in, the uh, winter, last winter of January of 2023, uh, a couple of days a week as a drop-off program in her home, um, families are able, she works with families to kind of figure out what curriculum is right for their kids, and then she'll help kind of guide those that curriculum during the day. It's a mixed age um, environment, so she'll have some whole group activities and lessons, but she'll also have a lot of uh, ind- individual independent time where kids can work on their own pro- programs and projects. And and then she just facilitates that. And uh, the whole program costs about $25 a day for families to go for a full school day, which includes uh, a nutritious homemade lunch that she prepares <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's just such a wonderful um environment that she's created there she's expanding to a third day or has expanded to a third day this fall uh, just again about a dozen kids who are thriving and it's just a i think a perfect example of uh, what i'm seeing in rural communities and you know in urban communities so that's kind mm-hmm. of the tiny town of Abbeyville, but i was also yes. in detroit michigan and seeing families there um, really take charge of their children's education uh, in more urban areas, I think about in the Detroit example, Bernita Bradley, who runs Engaged Detroit. Yes, yes, yeah. So you may know Bernita; she's amazing. And all of these folks are Vela Education Fund recipients, but. Bernita had been a parent advocate for a number of years, and then when COVID hit, she started helping some families who wanted to homeschool their kids in Detroit to do that. So she started off just sort of supporting with resources and encouragement uh, about a dozen families in 2020 who were homeschooling. At the time, she wasn't homeschooling, but ended up pulling her daughter out of public school to uh, to homeschool her at the kind of the, uh, that, that, that pandemic year. Today, Engage Detroit... Uh, supports more than uh, uh, 100 families, nearly 250 homeschoolers in the city of Detroit um, who are thriving. And she's been able to connect new homeschool moms with veteran homeschool moms uh, in Detroit and really provide a now a, a brick and mortar space. Families are able to come. That She was able to raise donations to have a, a meeting center for homeschooling families and bring in um you know various people to offer classes and support and mentoring and just community and it's just amazing to see what's happening there.
0: Oh that is inspiring. Oh my goodness. Um yeah, again, so many things going through my mind. What an opportunity for a mom to develop all her talents and also to to provide for others and just to create a, a community where everybody helps each other. Homeschooling used to be you were the Lone Ranger, and you had a lot of arrows coming your way. And what what a blessing to see so much progress. Um, Yeah, and
1: Liz, if I can just add too, I mean, I think about The program that Bernita's built, which is so special and being able to bring in, you know, parents like you, who you said you started homeschooling in 1982. She has some parents who started homeschooling in the 70s before it was really legally, you know, recognized in in Michigan Mm -hmm. in this case, uh, kind of doing so under the radar. And now they're able to give back and help this uh, entirely new uh, generation of homeschooling parents who do not want to send their kids to the Detroit public schools and really, you know, want something else and something better. So it's just been wonderful to kind of see that intergenerational community and connection. You know,
0: it's so exciting. We have um, an excellent question from Tressie. If one has a talent or specialty and wants to offer a day of learning to the homeschool groups in their area, what would be the best way to do this?
1: That's a really great question. I think there's all kinds of different ways. You know, certainly if you know about micro schools or hybrid homeschools or co-ops in your community, you could reach out directly to them. I've also seen um, individuals post in local homeschool Facebook groups and say, Mm -hmm. hey, I know I have some time. I have this passion or this interest or skill. I'd love to be able to share it with anyone who's looking to create a class. And my experience has been typically, you know, parents will jump on that and say, yes, (laughs) sign me up. This is great. Great. Um, yeah. so I think that that's another opportunity there. Um, I think some of you may know about outschool.com, yeah. which is a platform of live virtual classes where mm-hmm. individuals can just sign up and offer a class, and then you can set your own pricing, you set your own timing. Uh, and some educators and parents have done have earned a lot of money. And you know, if it's a popular class, you'll end up with uh, you know, quite a wait list and be able to open and expand to new times and and new offerings. And so that can also be a way of sort. Of dipping your toes and uh and potentially gaining some some money there so that's outschool.com
0: thank you uh, another place that you can look tressie and anyone interested go to the public library i know as homeschoolers we kind of lived at the public library so uh, librarians often have kind of a feel for who homeschooling families in their area um One question I have, speaking of public school teachers, I was telling about this upcoming podcast to a friend of mine who was a longtime public school teacher, and her instant response was, if everybody pulls away into these little homogeneous groups, how will they ever learn to get along with people that have differing viewpoints? Would, I bet you've heard this question before. Would you well, like you
1: Well, know, homeschoolers address... have heard this question before too, right? <laughs> yes, um yes. How will your kids be socialized? And of course, our response is always, well, they, they have even more authentic socialization yes. Um, yes. being immersed in the people, places, and things of their community. There have been research studies done uh, about sort of um, cultural capital. I think about Daniel Hamlin at the University of Oklahoma, who's found that homeschoolers have higher levels of what he calls cultural capital, meaning um, more connection to the wider community because uh, we're immersed in the in the larger community and really interacting mm-hmm. in a more genuine yes. way. And so microschoolers would be the same. And I think on the to kind of push that a little bit more too, it's important to remember that public schools are not unifying. If anything, uh, they create divisions. And that's why we see fights at school board meetings because there's always this battle of political will and battles between diverse constituents with diverse viewpoints and preferences um, who are kind of fighting to have their will apo- imposed upon others in a public school classroom. Uh, so, you know, I think if anything, we'll see greater social harmony in a much more diverse, decentralized education ecosystem.
0: Thank you, well, I will just have you talk to her, (laughs) but yes. um, And teaching people to get along with others is really the responsibility of the parents. I mean, how much bullying goes on in public schools and all these these other nasty things, getting some wonderful questions. Um, From Allie, what advice would you give to moms that are experiencing burnout, as well as those who are not satisfied with options in their town? And can you also give some of your favorite resources? That's a big question.
1: Yeah. So, okay, if you're experienced experiencing burnout, um, you know, I, I would I would just connect with whatever local homeschool communities are near you. So, I love your idea, Liz, of connecting with librarians. They yes. often uh, have a good sense of what's going on. I do think that some of the kind of grassroots uh, organiza- homeschool organizations that typically are at the state level or these homeschool Facebook groups, all mm-hmm. kinds of different affinity groups within the homeschooling community, reaching out there and just being honest uh, and kind of putting your vulnerabilities out there. You know, I'm, I'm feeling burnt out. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And you might hear mm-hmm. from others who've, uh, felt that way, are feeling that way, maybe that's an opportunity to form a co-op or a pod together or hear about what other uh, op- opportunities are available. And in terms of, you know, if your family, if your family looking for some op- options, what do you do? Again, I think these homeschool co-op groups, oh, excuse me, homeschool Facebook groups are useful. I think um, searching for uh, alternative education options in your local community can be helpful. Some national resources that have uh, ways of kind of connecting you with local um, providers are the National Microschooling Center, um, the Alternative Education Resource Organization, which uh, their URL is educationrevolution.org. They've been around since 1989 and have a directory. (laughs) of um, alternative education options, typically more on the kind of self-directed and progressive side. Um, You could look up and see if there's any hybrid homeschool programs or university model programs near you. Um, I think that that's probably it. And then Vela, the Vela Education Fund or VelaEdFund.org has uh, a directory as well.
0: Oh, thank you. There's, yeah, just, just start looking. I find that if you start just putting out feelers, you will bump into somebody or some some organization. So just ask, yeah, check the Facebook pages. Um, Let's see, from Janet, can you please clarify the state laws in order to stay out of the state's Department of Education? Um, And I'm just gonna answer that, just go online to your your state and look up uh, homeschooling laws. You mentioned homeschool laws, charter school laws. Is there a law governing co-ops and microschools? I'm trying to understand where this falls in order to stay away from state regulations.
1: Um, yeah, I, I would say I think you're right, Liz. You know, going on to your state laws, I think uh, HSLDA, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, also has uh, homeschool laws by state. Um, microschools and pods are uh, often intentionally permissionless, right? Like they 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 often want to stay under the mm-hmm. radar. Um, that said, some states are starting to kind of create some definitions for better or worse around microschools or pods. I would argue that it's better if we keep them kind of intentionally broad and vague to mm-hmm. allow for a lot of innovation and experimentation. Um, but you think of the, ex- or I can think of the example of West Virginia that has defined microschools as another option to opt out of compulsory attendance laws. So there's homeschooling is one uh, exemption in West Virginia for compulsory attendance, and uh, microschools are another, and then traditional private schools. So that's one state that has kind of led the way in creating microschool legislation. Georgia has the Learning Pod Protection Act that emerged uh, during the kind of pandemic years um, to enable families to kind of get together in these learning communities without fear of um, a crackdown or being labeled a traditional private school. Mm-hmm. So I think we're still early there. Um, and again, mo- many of these learning centers and micro and pods, um, you know, they're certainly complying with their local regulations, but it's often very vague. And this was true even mm-hmm. in the learning centers and micro I documented in my 2019 book. Um, they often run as sort of tutoring centers. So that's sort of the business classification or designation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe families are recognized or registered as homeschoolers in the state. So the learning center or the tutoring center uh, is you know, operating as a business entity under that category. And then the families are complying independently and individually as homeschoolers. So that's a common example. But some, you know, in some states, it's really easy to start a private school. And so many of these micro schools in those states will just become a private school.
0: Yes, yes. Um, yeah. we operated as a private school, we lived in Colorado for a very long time. And we were able to operate as a private school, just us and a couple of other families super, super loose. They have since tightened up their their laws, but still. Um
1: can I just give one example, Liz, of this? Oh, and I because I, I think it'll depend um again on state laws. In some states it's really easy to homeschool, really hard mm-hmm. to open a private school. In other states it's really hard to homeschool, easy to open a private school. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. parents and teachers being very um you know, adaptable, uh, and creative are able to find the best fit. And so the one example I like to use is Nevada, which has, I, I argue the most difficult private schools in the country, private school regulations in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. it's extremely difficult to open a secular private school in Nevada. You have, there's all these mm-hmm. occupational licensing requirements. You have to be a state licensed teacher or administrator to open a, a non-church, um, private school. And Mm -hmm. that prevents a lot of people uh, from doing that something unheard of in other states to have this Mm -hmm. this barrier to entry. But in Nevada, homeschooling laws are relatively lenient. And so we see this sort of burst of homeschooling and micro schools running uh, as learning centers or tutoring centers for homeschoolers. So just for a sense of scale, According to the National Microschooling Center that I mentioned that's based in Las Vegas, Nevada, they estimate that within about a 10-mile radius of the Las Vegas Strip, so downtown Las Vegas, there are more than 25 microschools serving more than 300 learners, and they expect that number to more than double to over 600 learners within the next year. And most of those are running um, for homeschoolers as sort of tutoring centers or learning centers, but they're often op- operating, you know, kind of five day a week schooling alternative programs for a fraction of the cost. Of traditional private schools providing a lot of that experimentation. And I've visited them. They are absolutely beautiful. All kinds of diverse models from faith-based models to um, secular models, Montessori-inspired models. There's two Acton Academies. Acton Academy is yeah, of of, another one of those fast-growing mm-hmm. micro-school networks. So yes. uh, just, again, a lot of uh, exciting things there.
0: Oh, isn't that great, moms? I mean, there's just, the sky is Kind of the limit, the sky. So use your creativity and just go for it. Um, questions. We are unfortunately running, kind of getting close to the top of the hour. Um oh, here's a question from Amy. I missed the very beginning, but I have family members in another state. Is there a way that I could help with their education online if we do not live in the same state? Interesting question.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, again, the family would need to comply with their own local homeschooling regulations. Um, but there's no reason that you couldn't offer, you know, tutoring or instruction virtually. I mean, of course, that's how Khan Academy got started, right? The yes, the yes. global free online um, mm-hmm. learning program that's just really, I think, revolutionized education, a lot of homeschoolers using Khan Academy. Mm-hmm. And Sal Khan started just Offering kind of online tutoring for his niece, uh, and then that you know expanded to now reach hundreds of thousands, probably millions of students. Yes. Oh, so
0: so moms, do you have any questions? Uh, you can um, come become a panelist, ask your question, or put it in the chat. Um, we have just a few more minutes with Carrie, who <laughs> just such a wealth of information. Any questions?
1: I think Rachel has a
2: question. Yeah, Hi, how are you? Yeah. So I am actually. I was really interested to join this because I am pulling my child out of school this week. We oh talked gosh. about it last week. We made the decision. So I guess this has been really helpful because you're saying so many definitions and words of things that I did not understand or know before I make this decision. So mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for everything. So I can like go search more about middle school in sixth grade. So. We're going that route, and so I I really like how you said you know um you know I have been on the Facebook group page, and that has been helpful because then it's locally they're kind of telling you like hey this is what we've done this is what worked this is what worked this direction so just kind of pulling it all together this week. So wish me luck. <laughs>
1: oh yes, that's so great. Yeah, I think you'll be you'll find you have more information sort of information mm-hmm. overload mm-hmm. if you're looking specifically for kind of drop off places or hybrid places. I might suggest kind of posting that specifically Mm -hmm. in a homeschool group um, saying that you're looking for some kind of unconventional education setting or uh, a Mm -hmm. co-op, if that's what you're looking for, there's obviously wonderful programs for independent homeschoolers and lots of classes and resources as well. So I
2: this is a very basic question that maybe I'm not hearing it right. So is homeschooling and online learning, that's the same thing. Well, From it school. depends. Um, some states have
1: have public virtual schools. In yeah, which case, I'm, like you're... I'm in Florida, so that's kind of where it's. Spelled. Yeah. So you have the okay. Florida virtual school. That's a pri- That's a public uh, option. Um, there's also charter schools, where uh, virtual charter schools, where in some states students would t- attend tuition free, but are considered a public charter school student. Um, but there's also private options, including. Um, you know, opportunities for families out of state to pay to be at another state's virtual school, for example, or a private virtual program. Um, and those are sprouting as well, all kinds of different uh, virtual learning opportunities. So I guess the answer is, it depends. <laughs> um, and, you know, and some families, this is another interesting point. And Liz, I, you might have a sense of this too. But I've talked to families, for example, whose kids might be enrolled in a either a public virtual school or full-time in a private online school or a mm-hmm. charter school, virtual charter school, and they still identify as homeschoolers because okay. that feels um, like what they're doing. And in many ways it is, right? Like they have often have more of that freedom and flexibility with a virtual school. They're not tied to seat time requirements. They can mm-hmm. uh, kind of do their work it's self-paced and and usually asynchronous, so they can do their work kind of spread out throughout the week. So you can understand that they might identify as homeschoolers, even though legally they may be considered, um, you know, enrolled in an online private school or, or a public yeah. school. Liz, I'm sure you remember Lara which was one of the first
0: yeah. um, yes.
1: micro schools. Mm-hmm. Pat Montgomery mm-hmm. created that in yeah. Michigan, in Michigan. Um, uh-huh. I believe in 1967, 68. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and that, that still exists. It's still a micro school in Ann Arbor, but uh, they have about 2000 students enrolled in their online program worldwide. And that's a private school. So again, in some states, those students are recognized as enrolled in a private school. In other states, states won't recognize online schools. Um and so they may have to be legally homeschoolers. And even in states if they are able to enroll as full time private online students might self-identify as homeschoolers. So mm-hmm. it's all very murky. <laughs> it is. And Rachel, you say you live in Florida. Florida yes. is
0: abounds in wonderful education options. Um,
2: That was one of the reasons we moved to Florida was for the schools. And so we did public school last year and just, we toyed with it all year. And just, we did. they've been in school for three weeks and we're ready to go this route. So, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. so uh, just a, a quick thought though. I don't know how old your child is, but give yourself and your child kind of, It's called de schooling, where you just.
2: I just read about that. I Googled it last week, like the other day. Yeah, de schooling.
0: Just give yourself some, I don't know, some downtime, some uh, recalibrate or, yeah, recalibrating. Um, And permission. I I love that permissionless, isn't that, um, you know, that there's no one right way to do this. And. Just help your child and you love learning and, mm-hmm. and live life, live an interesting life and bring them along.
2: Well, and that's just... the thing is my husband and I, we, we are very active and part of it is I, the experiences they get out in the world with us are so yeah. much more important. Yes. Than yes. Yeah. and i'll just
1: i'll just add liz if i can i think you're right that florida is the place to be rachel you Mm -hmm. have uh i'm sure many of us are jealous at the education options and accessibility that you now have in florida florida leading the way for years in school choice policies and now recently implementing a universal education savings account program there that applies to all k-12 students to have annual access to education funding if you choose to use it available um, education resources, including micro and tutoring centers and educational therapies. And South Florida, I don't know where you are exactly in Florida, all through Florida, there's a lot of possibilities. But South Florida is really a hub of education entrepreneurship in mm-hmm. uh, the three main counties of South Florida. So Broward, Miami-Dade and Palm Beach counties. Um, mm-hmm. There are uh, at least 125 of these micro schools serving uh, more than 8000 students right now. Okay. So it is just uh, a grassroots uh, effort of entrepreneurial parents and teachers who are creating homeschool programs, pods, microschools, low cost private schools, again, many of which are um, included in the in the universal ESA program. So good place to be. Okay. Thank All you. right, wow. And and I would just say, if you are in Florida, South Florida, the Innovative Educators Network
2: okay,
1: is uh, a a grassroots organization to look into. Um, there's also, I believe, a Facebook group, Microschool Florida.
0: Wow. You are on your morning, way, Rachel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, great. Um, Hannah, how much time do, we, do you want us to leave for you to make announcements? And Hannah, by the way, is our tech wizard that she just hides, but she makes this all happen. Well, thank you so much, Liz. You're very kind. Uh, We are three minutes out, and so I think it's time for me to run through the announcements. Um, So with that, thank you so much, Carrie. I am going Yeah. (laughs) Right. This has actually been fabulous. And I've had a couple of people in the chat say, this is like the best one. This is the best podcast we've ever been to. So thank you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, You can come live next door anytime, (laughs) Carrie.
1: (laughs) Oh, this is really fun. Thanks so much for having me.
0: thank you. you. Um,
1: Yes.
0: I would be really excited to see, based on what I've seen in the chat, what some of these moms go out and do with all this information. Yes.
2: Yeah, and I would say, Hannah,
1: if you can't find what you're looking for, don't be afraid to build it. Now is the moment to be uh, an entrepreneurial parent and create Mm -hmm. what you can't find.
0: Yeah.